You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, May 21st, 2020. I'm Ed Harrison for Real Vision here in Washington, D.C. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Shortly, I'm going to be joined by Roger Hurst in the U.K., but first, let's listen to Nick Correa. Thanks, Ed. Last week, my colleague, Peter Cooper, gave an overview about the second wave of infections that is occurring in China, Hong Kong, and South Korea. Today, I'm going to follow up on what's going on in South Korea right now. Since the incident of the major spread among Itaewon's nightclubs earlier this month, Korea's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Deputy Director, Kwon Jun Wook, has reported that of 201 virus patients connected to Itaewon, 95 had actually visited these nightclubs and 111 were their contacts. However, continuing to track down these cases will prove to be difficult as it involves the highly marginalized LGBTQ community in South Korea. Here's why this aspect of the story is a critical piece of the puzzle. As part of South Korea's efforts to contain the virus, those who visited nightclubs and bars were required to leave a name and phone number in case they needed to be contacted by officials for tracing infections. Unfortunately, as the LGBTQ community in South Korea still faces major discrimination and little legal protection, Seoul's mayor Park Won-soon said that, 3,000 of the 5,500 plus people who visited these nightclubs the same time that the young man who was originally infected either left false numbers or did not respond to calls from officials. They had tried to promise anonymity to those who had visited these nightclubs. However, the LGBTQ community has been even more stigmatized in certain media outlets as a result of this outbreak. And those who identify as LGBTQ are increasingly becoming fearful of being revealed and subjected to abuse. Even though South Korea has implemented an excellent contact tracing system, this aspect of the Itaewon story will make it incredibly challenging for South Korea to contain this new cluster of cases, as hundreds are still unaccounted for. Also, just as schools were about to reopen, 66 high schools in Incheon had to be closed again, as two students had found to be infected after visiting karaoke lounges. As of today, karaoke lounges have also been closed down. Senior health official, Yoon Tai-ho said in a briefing this morning that, quote, given Incheon's proximity to densely populated Seoul, delays in contact tracing can lead to large-scale transmissions, end quote. Keeping schools free of infection going forward may also prove to be difficult, as one high school teacher had shared with Reuters that some of the rules would be, quote, practically impossible to implement, end quote. For example, students have been allotted specific times during the day when they can use the restroom. The teacher in the Cheonggi province said, quote, I feel like we're carrying a time bomb, end quote. Even as South Korea has been highly praised worldwide, it appears that preventing new waves of infections will be near impossible, even in the countries that have been seen as the standard for a timely and effective response to the virus. How long will the reopening of a country be if different places like bars, nightclubs, and schools have to continually reopen and reclose? And what sort of economic damage within a country would occur with this cycle of stopping and starting again? 
And with that, I'll send it back to you, Ed. Thanks, Nick. So, Roger, uh, I, you know, let me t talk to you about something that I've been thinking about. This is a, a little bit of a departure from how we're doing the Real Vision Daily Briefings. I want to talk about the medium to longer term economic and market outcomes from a specific outcome from the coronavirus. It, it, it has to do a lot with what you were talking to Ash about yesterday. And what you, one of the things that you were talking about is administering the vaccine. That is, is to administer the vaccine would actually take, you know, weeks and, and potentially years to get everyone uh, done, given the, the time scale that we're working with now. Maybe you can just explain that a little bit before I go into what I want to do today. Yeah, I was comparing the, the, to the as you say, the vaccine, if there ever is a vaccine, but with, with the British experience of testing. So just testing our population where we're hoping to do 100,000 a day. Most days we fail miserably. And if you did 100,000 a day, it would take 660 days, give or take, uh, to do the whole population. So nearly two years. The point being is that um, if there was a miraculous vaccine found tomorrow, you've got to you know, synthesize the thing in, in huge quantities and get it out to people. All this takes time. So the point is that this thing is not going away in the short term. It's here for the long term because the, just the logistics of dealing with it, to kind of you know the solution to it, is going to be a very very long drawn out affair. And that's where I think you know my view on the economy, uh, and you know particularly when we look at things like balance sheets impairments, that's where I think that the issue will come from. Is it will take a long time, even if we had success with a vaccine tomorrow morning. Right. And, you know, I think that that basically what we're saying is, is let's look at that as a potential outcome, a likely outcome, even given how you're putting it. You know, right before this, Nick was telling me that if they came out with a vaccine literally tomorrow, he'd be very squeamish about signing up for that because they just came up with it. You know, so we're talking about a long term uh, that we're going to be living with a COVID-19. And this has nothing to do whether or not you believe it's deadly or how deadly you believe it. It means how people are likely to react. Let me give you an example that I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal today and it was talking about what Wall Street banks are doing uh, with regard to COVID-19. They're moving away from the downtown. They're saying, we're not going to staff up in our buildings downtown because one, you have to get public transport to get there. That's a confined space where super spreading happens. You have to wait for minutes, you know, uh, you know, 10 minutes, who knows, and be in a confined space in an elevator for a long period of time. And then day after day, you have to be in a confined space on the 73rd floor with a bunch of people from all over the Washington, the, the, the New York metropolitan area, who knows, or the, uh, you know, same thing in London. That is a, a recipe for spreading, and they will, and and no company wants to have that uh, on their conscience because maybe they'll get sued. Uh, so that's the reality. That irrespective of what governments do, we're going to have a reaction in in the populace. So I want to talk about how this looks in terms of the economy and markets. Uh, let's uh, you know, let's actually start with Europe as an example. Uh, let's start with uh, with leisure. Uh, wh where are the places that, I mean, leisure, sporting events, aren't those the places where, you know, you're not going to be going to a Chelsea uh, uh, Arsenal match if you think that you're going to get coronavirus and potentially die? Yeah, I, I think the you know, this is the thing which is 
completely different about um, this downturn compared to all the others, which we've talked about many, many times before. You take .com and, you know, there was the all-pervading influence of equity, which hurt a lot of, of balance sheets. But ultimately, people still went out. People went to the pub. In fact, people drowned their sorrows, all the rest of it. In 2006 to 2008, obviously, mortgages. Again, it was all-pervading. But the consumer, when you look at things like month-on-month -month changes in personal consumption expenditures, they weren't particularly um, unusual, even though it's quite a catastrophic great financial crash. Whereas obviously this time around, it's been huge and it's hitting you know, what the, the area that particularly for developed markets. So when you talk about Europe, US, parts of Asia, we've moved massively into leisure and consumption within the le leisure. So restaurants, et cetera. This is the area that's going to get hit very dramatically this time. And even if we have some form of, of unwinding of the restrictions, there are an unwinding of extreme restrictions to a place where we'll have restrictions still in place, where those restrictions still mean that the number of people coming through the door are not sufficient to offset the fixed cost, therefore margin compression, balance sheet destruction, and ultimately these are uh, sectors and, and companies that will fail. But I think the key thing here, not just single companies that have over leveraged themselves, but whole sways and whole sectors that are all in the same boat and are all going to suffer, and they will have margin contraction to the point of of, of having losses. Yeah, and you know, uh, for me, I mean, it's pr pretty obvious where that goes because of the conversation you were having with Ash yesterday about European banks. If you have whole swathes of industries, not just individual names, that are having problems, then you're going to have a problem in the European banking sector. Yeah, I mean, the, the European banks, and you know, everybody knows that the European banks went through that horrendous period uh, in the beginning of the last decade. And the, it was a fudge to get out of it. Have they paid down their, their loans? Yes, they've unwound some of them, but some of the banks carry enormous non-performing loans or potentially non-performing loans. So there was a structural issue. It was a structural issue at the banking level and in many cases at the government level. And these were interchangeable, as we saw with a lot of countries where I had banking crisis, which became a government financing crisis. So these are those interchangeable positions. So those never recovered. Most of these European basket cases remained on the back foot and never sorted out the problem. They hoped that the ECB would do it and the ECB fudged it. Roll on to today. And now you're going to hit these very same banks with whole sectors, so whole industries, potentially going into a loss-making scenario for an extended period of time. Which is why when it comes to things like the bailouts that we're seeing, you know, Europe is definitely going to have to need a much, much bigger bailout than the ones that have been announced just recently this week and prior to that. You know, and so, you know, we, we were talking about or you were talking to Ash yesterday about five hundred billion dollars. And you were saying to me just before this, we're talking about, you know, a, a 20 trillion euro, 20 trillion dollar economy. That's a drop in the bucket when you're talking about whole swathes of companies in particular sectors like leisure, which are increasingly important, uh, going to the wall. Uh, so what that effectively means is, is, is that you have a, a large increase in uh, loan losses at these, uh, at these banks. And the scenario that you were painting yesterday is that ultimately, and I agree with this, uh, the, you're going to see government come in. You know, the government's going to come in both in terms of the banks, they're also going to come in in terms of uh, the sectors. What does that mean in terms of what the equities look like in the in Europe in those sectors? I mean, let me tell you what I'm thinking first, though. I'll tell you what I'm thinking is 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 that 
let's let's use United Airlines as an example. If United Airlines is is missing middle seats and their planes, as they said they're going to be, are 67 percent uh, full and they're going to run more planes. OK, they can make up some of that by increasing prices. But ultimately, that's not a profitable uh, exercise. That's why Warren Buffett left. That means that United Airlines is going to go bankrupt unless the government comes into play. And in this time, are you going to allow United Airlines, which was buying back tons of shares uh, to, to pay their CEOs, to actually exist, shareholders to actually make money if the government is, is coughing up money hand over fist? I think the answer is no. I think that a lot of these companies that are publicly traded, their shares are going to zero. Well, I think my my view on that is it's a slightly scurrilous one because I can consider myself to be a hardcore capitalist, and therefore, you know, any view um, of this nature is against my general genes, as it were. But there's a lot of companies out there which, over the last ten years, failed to put money aside for a rainy day, for any rainy day. Never mind something as catastrophic as what we're seeing at the moment. And so in some ways, they failed their fiduciary requirements. They, they failed as corporates because they were you know, effectively fiddling the books to make sure the CEOs got paid and shareholders. Now, my view is that if these are really genuinely important companies for nations, then they should be allowed to wipe out the equity holders and even you know, the debt as well. And they should be allowed to do that and even be nationalized. Now, the reason I say this is I don't want anything to be nationalized normally. But nationalize these things, keep the jobs going, basically keep them as companies if you need to. Some of them have to go under. But then down the road, you can sell them off again and effectively recoup some of those losses, which I prefer rather than just going, oh, here's a handout, which is from the taxpayer anyway. So take from the taxpayer in the future, give it to these companies now who weren't doing a very good job. So I kind of think along those lines, I, I do think that we are, it, there is this danger, this immediate reaction that we saw that is effectively just transferring cash from the everyday person from Main Street back to the corporates who are doing a bad job in the first place. But if I'd gone to the real point within Europe, and I think the problem for Europe, if you're an investor, is that Europe has nearly all the really good companies are either in private hands or too small. They're not liquid. If you look at the European equity market, if you actually look at most of the listed um, assets within Europe, there's not many that you would really want to buy. There are some very, very good quality old world economy kind of companies out there. But all the all this kind of the debt that we've got in Europe, would you really want to touch that apart from maybe a few distressed guys out there? And most of the equities here, they're just not that exciting, which is why the European equity market in its totality is underperforming the US, the European banks we've talked about before. So the problem for Europe is it's got the structural problems of the governments with too much debt. It's got the structural problem of an EU that really doesn't know how to deal with its home member states. And within that, you've got an equity market which... The listed bit is just not that appetizing when you look across the Atlantic and see you know, a few stocks only, but a few stocks that are global dominance in uh, in the, the sort of the cutting edge of where we think the economy is going. And Europe doesn't have that. So Europe's got a lot of problems. Where do you get the inflows from? Who's going to go, oh, you know, I want to buy Nestle. Yeah, Nestle is good. It's always been good, but there's nothing exciting there. There's nothing thrilling within Europe, unfortunately. You know, uh, I think at a base level, it speaks to potentially outperformance of the uh, continued outperformance of the S&P. However, I want to uh, question that and uh, talk to me about, you know, the outperformance of Amazon and and how companies like that in a, a world where the coronavirus is with us for two years, three years, how companies like that are going to perform and what you're seeing right now. So I think that what I would expect to happen going forward is that all these amazing companies, which are 
you know, obviously, this, Amazon has said, you know, we've had to use $4 billion to start rebuilding ourselves for this current environment. But ultimately, these are the winners. Now, going down the road, these guys are going to make a significant um, level of profits. They've never paid any taxes. Certainly, you know, you have your European office, so, you, so your Irish office, so you don't pay European taxes. I think governments are going to go after these companies. I think they have to. I think kind of morally they have to. But the problem with that also is that I think these companies will know that. And so ultimately, they will probably go, I've got a cash pile, I will use it. So they will end up diluting their model by buying other companies to buy market share. But that's nearly always diluting the, the efficient models that they currently have. And there's a third element, which is a little bit shorter term, which is I've talked about something that Quant Insights, who I, I've talked about before, they look at you know, how these stocks actually perform versus various um, factors. For instance, the macro factor. Amazon had a very, very low relationship to macro factors a couple of months ago, which is one of the reasons why it massively outperformed. If you wanted to play macro, you played the Russell, you played a certain number of currencies. Amazon is picking up as a macro play. It's not a big macro play, but it's gone from 6% macro, according to QI, to 32%. So it may be, now that we're all used to the idea that you never sell Amazon, in the next rollover, it might be 50% macro and actually has a good play on the downside. The point being is that right now, it feels like these stocks will just keep on going. These are the winners. This is concentration. But ultimately, like with everything, if that's concentration, you see a concentration of revenues and profits, every government everywhere is going to go, I'll have a bit of that because these are extreme times. Right. Definitely. And, you know, um, these are extreme times. I mean, because obviously what we're talking about is the singular scenario where we have a COVID uh, socially distant environment for two to three years. And I'm, I'm thinking about this in terms of the first scenario that you were talking about in Europe, where basically, the, uh, you know, all of these sectors go to the wall and therefore you have an extreme number of write downs. And obviously, if you're talking about nationalization, you could be talking about banks, the RBS sort of scenario. Another potential outcome, I believe, is what I would call the, the supranational uh, bad bank. And I want to ask you what you think about this as an outcome. This is where, you know, the Deutsche Banks, the Comets Banks of the world, the, uh, you know, the Monte di Pasis in, uh, in uh, Italy, they are, you take all their assets, take them off the balance sheet, you put it into a bad bank at the uh, EU level, and then you fund it with EU level debt that doesn't even touch the national balance sheet. And this is the fudge that gets you from 500 billion to 2.5 trillion dollars. What do you think about the potential for that in the world that we're talking about? Uh, I think that Pandora's box is slowly being prized open. And I think that you know what we saw with Macron and Merkel this week is this is a package which it needs to jump, they need to jump through loads and loads of hoops to get it approved. But let's say they get it approved in 500. Then things get really, really bad. And what I mentioned yesterday is that Europe tends to react when it really is in the hole. So if things roll over again, it'll go, well, we got the 500. You agreed that. We kind of need to double it now. Oh, and then double it again. And you're at 2 trillion before you know it. And everybody goes, oh, God, you know, how do we end up in that position? But that's kind of how this, this works. And Unfortunately, you know, people say, oh, it's a bad bank and it's it's off those balance sheets. It's still there. I mean, it's you're just hiding it in a different cupboard, but you're not getting rid of it. And ultimately, somebody's going to have to pay for it. Now, then we can talk about debt jubilees and all the rest of that. And we still don't know what the consequences will be of that, whether that just means that you know, the currency will eventually crater, whether we get inflation. But the point with all of these is that 
you think you get away with it by doing one thing, but all you're doing is you're going to have an equal and opposite effect somewhere else. It's a bit like you either have debt defaults or you have inflation. You, you lose the purchasing power of your capital by either losing it or having it inflated away. So people go, well, one or the other. It's like, well, one's just slow death and one's immediate death where I can come out of it quicker. But they're the same ultimately. And that's what we're seeing here. So Europe, I think Europe's got the existential problem that it needs to keep itself together. And by keeping itself together, it probably needs to go supranational. Uh, and as I've mentioned before, I think it needs the German banks to kind of reach that point where they're not a going concern anymore. And I think Italy wants that to happen so they can go, right, we're now all together playing on the same uh, hymn sheet. You know, uh, as you were talking about Europe, immediately I thought to myself, the UK is not a part of Europe. I, I know that, you know, that's for a few more months. <laughs> and so I immediately thought to myself, uh, you're sitting there in the UK. I mean, do you have any thoughts about uh, how this plays out for the UK and also for the for the, the British pound? I think that you know, we we talked about this a little bit before. I do think that the pound goes lower because I think that the UK will continue on the fiscal path, as I've talked about before, the Conservatives doing fiscal expenditure to a level you'd normally expect from the Labour Party. And that was before COVID. This was after Johnson got elected. They said, we're going to do this. We're going to help the people, you know, the working man and woman who supported us at the last election. So they were going to go down that route. And what I've said here is that if you've got the reserve currency and you print and print and print, you might suck money in because you're defending your economy. If you haven't got a reserve currency like the UK, you print but you don't have that same stabilizer of sucking money in. So if the UK prints, then it should dilute the currency and cause the currency to go down, which is in some ways what we want so that we can actually start exporting our goods and right. services. And I think because the UK is one country, some people might say four, but ultimately it's kind of one country still, just about, and Europe's you know, got to go through all these hoops. The UK has that potential first mover advantage. So I see that the potential for the pound to go down is actually being re reflective of the greater flexibility that the UK can have. Now, there is a little bit of an extra uncertainty around Brexit. It's supposed to be at the end of this year. It might get delayed. The discussions so far are pretty terrible because everyone has many other things to worry about. But Sterling would be a sensible way for the UK to deal with its problems, do the fiscal, spend money now, get the currency down, and eventually we'll you know, trade deals, all the rest of it, five years down the road, we'll come out of it smelling of roses, allegedly. Well, you know, I'm I'm talking to a guy from uh, uh, Double Line actually later today, and that's a, a video that's going to appear next week. We're going to be talking about the potential for a hard Brexit, uh, given the dynamics that you're talking about, meaning that, you know, uh, let's say that you understand that you have the release valve of the currency that me and you have fiscal stimulus out the, the wazoo because of uh, COVID-19. Perfect time if you're a hard Brexiteer to say, let's just get it done. Let's let's go hard Brexit. How likely do you think a scenario that is? It's increasing um, simply because the timescale involved is compressing. And you know, what are people focused on? Well, they're not focused on Brexit. It's it's the back of everybody's mind in reality. So it is an increasing um, prospect. But I think you're right. I think that given the current scenario, people might be much more um, accepting of that. And I, you know, I think there's, because there's always this view, which is, and you know, I was, I was always kind of on the sort of Eurosceptic Remain camp, but at the same time, if, I, I never believe in the idea of Britain crashing out, that was always this negative connotation. A hard Brexit, some people would say a clean Brexit, a clean break where the UK is out. Um, it's increasing. Now, is it increasing to 30%? Yeah, maybe it is. 
in four weeks time, time it could be 40%. But it's that sort of thing. And I think that's what's reflected in the pound where we've seen it test in that 120 level. There's the uncertainty, but there's an increasing probability or possibility that a good old, well, not good old fashioned, but a clean, call it a hard Brexit, is coming back onto the table because of this environment. You know, so let's let's round it out then with the uh, EM, uh, because uh, if we're talking about an environment in which uh, COVID-19 is around for the long term, uh, EM is important because that's an increasing part of the global economy. Uh, FX is one of the places where you can see that. Uh, what are your thoughts on EM? Is it FX or are there other places that you're looking as well? So I think with, with EM and mentioned yesterday we're seeing a few of these currencies actually having a nice pop and today we saw brazil mexico um and the south african rand will have one to two percent moves against the dollar so strengthening so that that trend has continued a little bit further i think this is still the consolidation phase because it's very easy in europe and i'm sure it's the same in the us to get kind of mixed up with this oh we're coming out of it we're all the world's fine again because the uk is getting better the us is getting better but the rest of the world is not and we're still we might have reached peak globalization. That doesn't mean we've finished globalization. It means we're just beyond peak globalization, of which many of these economies are very integral. And you think about how much they feed into that, that, that median consumer in the West, and it's the median consumer in the West, in the US, particularly in Europe and UK, who's being impacted by this current crisis, much more so than the 1%. So unfortunately, this is another widening out of the wealth inequality. But they're the mass consumers often for whom are the end, these are often the end clients effectively of those emerging markets. Now, a lot of these emerging markets will not go into the sort of shocking shutdown that the US and Europe went into because they're right. not as dependent on consumption and services. They're more manufacturing. So I think this will we'll look back and we'll see that the developed markets got hit much harder on the economic sense. But humanitarian wise, it's still going to be very, very bad, unfortunately, in the rest of the world. So I still see that the, the safety valve here is going to be weaker currencies. And I think it's going to be the dollar. So stronger dollar, weaker currencies. There is the debt problem still. So I still believe that the final move in this will be dollar strength against these emerging markets. But we're just going through a consolidation phase you know, in the aftermath of the Fed at the weekend. Powell saying, we've got as much as we need. We've got as much as you think we have and then more. So don't bet against us. And the markets are sort of having that reaction that they always do. Right. So a relief rally. Yeah. You, let me tell you how I'm thinking about it. Uh, and, you know, I, I gave you a little inkling about this before we got online here. I'm thinking about it in terms of a reshoring, reonshoring. Uh, and in, in particular, you know, your comments about global case counts haven't declined. That's very apropos because in terms of EMs that we really care about in the, um, uh, you know, that people are, are invested in, the only ones that are in the uh, the uh, southern hemisphere are are mostly in Latin America, uh, and those countries are going through an explosion of uh, COVID nineteen cases right now. So what that tells you is 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 that COVID nineteen is still around, and the potential for it to boomerang back in the fall and the winter into the northern hemisphere is there. And when you see that, and you see the disruption that it creates. Immediately over the longer term, you're looking at a potential reonshoring, and that doesn't necessarily mean jobs per se. It you know it means robots certainly in uh, U uh, U.S. manufacturing. But I I think that it is a net negative for emerging markets, not only from a humanitarian perspective, but also from this perspective of reonshoring as well. 
It's been a concern. And, yeah, we everyone talked about this last year, never mind you know, in this environment, which is that as China was seeing a lot of its manufacturing jobs relocate to Southeast Asia, actually some of those jobs were relocating back to the US in particular because of automation. And I think that that is the big game changer because effectively, uh, you know, automation costs the same everywhere. So you might as well put it, you know, if you've got lots of space in the US, you've got space, you know, if you've got space in the UK, all these places, they will do it. And it's going to be this profound change where a lot of the countries, particularly the um, emerging, properly emerging countries, which could have hoped for that labor, um, not premium, but the benefits of cheap labor, they're going to miss out. They're going to miss out on the prize that China had and certain other parts of Southeast Asia had, will just completely pass a lot of countries by. And often, unfortunately, these are the countries which have the fastest rate of growth populations in the world at the moment. So it's a double whammy that they've got a labor force that will not have any jobs. And their goods, you know, their goods will be no more in demand, maybe less so in demand, because as you reduce the globalization, you reduce the amount of infrastructure. I mean, you think about the Belt and Road, how much need will there be of that, apart from the actual infrastructure being a way for China to get into countries today? We probably won't see goods transported in the same way that we maybe have if everything gets onshored again. And we accept, and I think there's a a stat that 78% of Americans would happily pay a little bit more not to buy some goods from places like China. I'm the same. I'm sitting here at the moment thinking I'd much rather spend a little bit more on really good meat from my local butcher and other places rather than buy the stuff that comes from New Zealand. Why would I do that? And so I think we are seeing, again, at the margin, just some of our attitudes change to onshoring. We're kind of slowly, by almost by osmosis, doing it ourselves and becoming more local in how we're thinking at the margin. But no, that's all that it requires. Yeah, I think this has been a really good discussion. I like uh, the experiment of talking about one specific outcome. I, you know, you added a lot of value to thinking about it from a market perspective. So I really appreciate that, Roger. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. And great to talk to you as well. Thanks a lot. Take care. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.